Hi, everyone. Welcome to the AltMed podcast. With me today, as always, Mitch Kurtz, my co-host. And we hello. have a very, very, hello, Mitch. We have a very, <laughs> very special guest today. We have from Mind Medicine Australia, the chairman himself. It is Peter Hunt. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's nice to be doing this with you. Oh, it's a very pleasure nice having you. And, and of all the days that we could be doing this, um, it is the day that a report that was commissioned by the TGA has been handed down, which I guess probably, for want of a better term, just vindicates a lot of the work that your organization, Mind Medicine, has been doing in the field of psychedelic medicine. So we're very lucky to have the opportunity to talk to you of all days on, on today. So before we dive into that and, and talk about maybe a bit of a 101 around psychedelic medicine. Can we perhaps start with your personal story, um, which was actually published um, on Mind Medicine's website back in June. And I, I read that and it really did move me. Um, and I, yeah, it's just such a, I don't know, it's such an intriguing journey of how you managed to find your way toward psychedelic medicine. So I'm gonna hand to you and then we can um, start to unpack the 101 basics. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, a way of background, I grew up in England the first uh, 13 years of my life. Uh, a pre pretty traditional family, what I, what I regarded as a pretty loving family. And then uh, with no uh, notice at all, my father committed suicide. And because he'd gone bankrupt, he basically left my mother with nothing. Uh, my mother was courageous enough to say, because we had nothing, let's start again and move to Australia. And so I came out here as a young man, then 14, and uh, arrived in Australia. And you know, with, with mixed feelings, I've got to say, excitement, but also great sadness about leaving everything I'd known behind. Mm. Uh, immersed myself in education, which was quite uncharacteristic of me, but I think it was the, the impact of what happened to my father. Uh, did much better at school than I ever thought possible. Then went to university, then became a lawyer, then moved into investment banking. And, you know, frankly, kept surprising myself in terms of uh, how well I did. Uh, but as I grew older, I, something was missing. And what was missing was community. And the fact that uh, I'd been pretty lucky because I'd come to Australia because of, a, of an amazing mother. And I could so easily have spiralled down. And that led me into the not-for-profit sector after 30 years of investment banking. And... Uh, between my wife and myself, we've started now five charities of which my medicine is the fifth. So that's the background. Uh, in terms of psychedelic psychedelics, uh, I have to admit that as a young man, I didn't go anywhere near anything that had the word drug in front of it. Yeah. So I had this sort of thought that actually, uh, and it's uh, in the case of these psychedelics, completely misguided, that somehow it, it would wreck my brain or, I, or it, it would be addictive. Um, so never did anything other than, you know, drank some alcohol uh, as a young man. Uh, my wife, Tanya, then came across uh, an article in The New Yorker about, by Michael Pollan about uh, a, a really amazing trial done by New York University for people with end-of-life distress. You know, they've been told they've had a terminal illness and were pretty depressed about it, not surprisingly. Uh, they'd They'd given them psilocybin-assisted therapy, and extraordinarily, uh, those people came out of that experience with wonder and at peace with the dying process, uh, which is a pretty amazing gift 
and one of those people was, was uh, uh, a Holocaust, a Jewish Holocaust survivor. Oh. Now, my wife is Jewish, and you know, like all Jewish people, I think there's inter intergenerational trauma because of what happened to them in the war. And uh, she got fascinated by this psychedelic therapy and tried to get us on trials. Uh, got on really well with the researchers in London. Uh, but the net effect of, of that was that we couldn't get onto a trial because we don't have any obvious mental illness. Uh, so we then went to Holland and where it's legal and uh, Tanya organized a therapist so that we could try, try psilocybin. And I got to say that uh, I didn't think much about it. You know, I had a lot of confidence in Tanya. She wanted to do it. And so I went along with it. And I was, uh, I found the experience quite extraordinary. Mm. And not what I'd expected. And I came out of the, that experience uh, really feeling that this was something incredibly special. Uh, didn't do it for another 12 months, uh, which again sort of indicates or should indicate that this stuff isn't addictive. Mm. Did it a second time. And then Tanya and I both came out of that experience saying, hey, we've got to bring this to Australia. We've got to make these therapies available to people suffering from mental illness because they can offer a an enormous opportunity for people suffering to get well. Yeah. Uh, so that's the story in brief. That's oh, amazing. Uh, did you find, I mean, just going through that, you know, that experience, obviously supervised in, in that clinical context, but, you know, in terms of, did you have any idea of whether the dose that they had given you was, I guess, you know, fairly modest or, you know, did you... I guess I think you recalled in the article that you had started seeing shapes and things like that. So I mean, I'm guessing it was perhaps maybe a little more than modest. And it was definitely a breakthrough dose. Yeah. And Thanks. the therapist that we had understood doses. Uh, and it's a strange experience because, you know, when you start, nothing happens for about 20 minutes. Mm. And my reaction in that 20 minutes was, well, you know, what's the big deal? <laughs> and, you know, you're lying there and you've got eye shades on suddenly you see these extraordinary psychedelic shapes mm. and that's sort of interesting. Yeah. But then suddenly you're sort of whizzed off into a completely different dimension of consciousness Yeah, where you become the observer. And it's, it's fascinating because the ego is gone and you're literally in your mind, just observing sensations coming into the, into the mind. And uh, it's no wonder that people come out of that experience feeling connected, connected because during the, that experience, you feel connected with everything. Mm. Uh, it's not what I'd expected, by the way. I mean, I'd expected something which was uh, all the stuff you sort of hear about in terms of uh, drugs and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't like any of that. It was an extraordinary experience. Yeah. What What is that exactly that you you know that you think people think of when they think illicit substances per se? Like, what kind of image does that conjure for you? Well, not now, by the way, but I think if I was being honest about myself in younger days, it would have been, you know, people weren't being responsible. Uh, they were trying to escape from reality, all those sorts of bias that so many people have. Mm. Uh, but when it comes to these psychedelic medicines, I mean, firstly, all the evidence says, even in a recreational environment, they are very safe. And there's been all sorts of university studies confirming that. Yeah. When you bring them into a, a medical domain, they're incredibly safe yeah. and they're not addictive. And the remission rates that uh, they're getting in trials are somewhere between 60 and 80%, which is for depression and PTSD, 
which is frankly unheard of with current treatments. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's amazing. And I think just the contrast between thinking about, you know, you in Holland with your wife with on <laughs> versus how many people in Australia might have um, had their sort of first experience because of the fact that it is kind of bundled with that recreational for hopefully not too much longer, um, which we might, well, we might as well dive into um, the report. Actually, before we do, I think Mitch flagged um, before we talked that we should get a 101 basics of psychedelic medicine on the table. Well, I think it's just worth noting, just so people who might not be familiar with, for example, the types of medicines that we're dealing with when we're talking about psychedelic substances. Yeah, and, and the conditions that they, they treat as well. Yeah, just as an overview. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, quick overview. If you think about mental illness in Australia, we have some of the worst mental health stats in the world. In fact, on a per-person basis, we're second only to, uh, to Iceland. Uh, Pre-COVID, one in five of us has a mental illness. Uh, one in eight of us are on antidepressants. One in four older people, one in 30 younger people. Uh, PTSD, when you look at the treatments, uh, the treatments work for, for a number of, for many people, but they don't work for a, a large number of other people. So, you know, with post-traumatic stress disorder, you've got remission rates of somewhere below 10%. Uh, with depression, remission rates are about 35%. So there's a large number of Australians who suffer from mental illness and never have the opportunity of getting well. Mm. And that means their lives aren't the lives that they should have. You then look at uh, innovation in the sector, and there's been precious little innovation now for decades. Uh, probably 45, 40 to 50 years in terms of pharmaceutical innovation. Now, turning to psychedelic-assisted therapies, they were used a lot in the 50s, in the, in the 50s and 60s, mm. before Nixon started his war on drugs and psychedelic medicines got caught up in all of that. But the way it works is this. Uh, you first screen to make sure that these therapies are, are appropriate for you, and to date they've been primarily used for treatment-resistant depression, that's psilocybin, or PTSD, which is MDMA. If you get through the screening, you'll then spend a bit of time with your therapist, you know, talking about your background, uh, but not getting into the, the trauma or the events that cause the mental illness too much. Uh, it's really a chance to get to, know, get to know your therapists and get comfortable with them. And then comes medicine day, and you know, you'll go into, a, into uh, a room which is decked out to feel really comfortable. Uh, so there'll be, a, there'll be a, some sort of lounge there which you can lie on. Uh, you're given eye shades, uh, music is, be, is played, and you, you're made to feel as comfortable as you can be given that you know, you, you know you're gonna take this tablet which is gonna have a significant effect on you. But at, at that stage, you've got confidence in your therapists and you know they're going to look after you. And uh, that safety feeling is really important. It's the rapport. It's the rapport. You yeah. then go through the medicine experience, and we might come on to it later, but the psilocybin experience and MDMA experience, they're fundamentally different. Uh, at the end of that experience, you go through what's called integration. And the purpose of integration with your therapist is to really bring, bring out what you've experienced in the medicine sessions into your life so that they can be retained afterwards. You'll then go through another medic medicine session and you'll have another integration session after that. And you may have a third medicine session and a third integration session. 
But the beauty of all this is that after the, these two to, to three sessions with the medicines and the, the integration that's framed around that, that's it. So we're not talking about taking pills for year after year after year. We're talking about a short course of therapy at maximum of three dosing sessions. And as I say, remission rates for people with treatment resistant depression and PTSD of somewhere between 60 and 80%, which, wow. is, which is truly remarkable. Absolutely. When you yeah. think about the, you know, those people potentially otherwise being committed to a lifelong cocktail of various, you know, SSRI and other antidepressant medications. I'm just, one thing you said that I just have to ask about, do you know what, is there a, like a playlist that's established for these types of sessions? What kind of music do they put on? <laughs> Uh, well, no, the playlists are very carefully put together to make sure that they, they, they fit in with the uh, the the medicine dosing that you're going through. So it's, it's Jimi Hendrix for psilocybin and trance <laughs> music for MDMA. Is that <laughs> no, no? What what they what they? I mean, the playlists have come a long way since the early days, and what they're trying to do is in the early stages of the experience. It's music without many words or, or no words, because the last thing you want to do is get the patient to start thinking about the words. Yeah. The music's designed to bring out the experience. Uh, later in the playlist, you may, you may have music with words. Uh, but what they're trying to do is they're trying to uh, use the music to, to actually back up the experience you're going through. So as you go to a peak, you want the music to go to a, a peak. As you start to come down, you want a different type of music. And it's very clever. Uh, Does that and, tie into also, you know, reports of people experiencing synesthesia, for example, in, in, in those moments? Where well, they it, have... it, it can do, because one of the extraordinary things about these, uh, the medicine dosing sessions is, uh, when I was, as I was saying, you, you know, you become a, with, with psilocybin an observer. Hmm. And you don't have control of your senses. So it's no wonder that the senses can become a bit, uh, a bit different to what we'd normally experience in ordinary life. Mm. But that's part of the wonder of the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and does it stop? So psilocybin, MDMA, the other types of drugs that you're looking at, LSD? Not, not so much. I mean, the reason we haven't focused on LSD is... is uh, there are connotations with LSD in people's minds, uh, which I think makes the hurdle a bit a bit higher in terms of getting broad public acceptance. And it's really just, it's just a, sorry, I was going to say higher than MDMA. Uh, definitely higher than psilocybin, and you know, mm. LSD and psilocybin have a lot of commonality about them. Mm. Uh, MDMA is is quite different. Yeah. Uh, but MDMA, you know, one of the, th one of the things that we uh, talk about a lot is that people need to, need to stop confusing medical grade MDMA with ecstasy, you know, yeah. ecstasy, the, a, a street drug. Yeah. With ecstasy, there are almost inevitably adulterants. It's not, it's not pure MDMA. Mm. There may actually be no MDMA in it at all. Mm -hmm. uh, with medical grade MDMA, we're talking about pure GMP standard medicine. Mm. Uh, without any adulterants, at doses that are safe. It's very different from, you know, going to a, a rave yeah. club and uh, getting, hot and getting hot and excited, drinking some alcohol, then having the ecstasy, 
not really knowing what the dosage is, getting it off the black market, not knowing its purity, yeah, and getting adverse consequences from that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm just so amazed that we're talking today of all days. And I, the report, that, and I only skimmed it before, but basically for those um, tuning in, uh, the TGA commissioned a report to be done. And, and please jump in, Peter, if I'm, I'm yeah. messing any of this up. But basically the report, um, you know, this, this is it's quite in contrast to what we saw earlier this year when the TGA handed a sort of an interim decision saying, yep. you know, we're actually going to remain, well, keep MDMA and psilocybin as schedule nine controlled drugs. Um, oh, sorry, uh, prohibited um, substances. Um, we won't move them to schedule eight controlled. And the report examined or did, I think there were eight trials, six of which related to um, patients with PTSD, one related yep. to anxiety and people who um, had, you know, I think, suffering from a life-threatening illness and then um, there was uh, anxiety from adults with autism and I suppose the you know in I think across the board there were really favorable results to to both psilocybin and MDMA but particularly I read for MDMA in doses of 100 milligrams or more um, but yeah now the commentary has kind of moved to well it's inevitable that the TGA might now just in the next sort of few months actually improve access pathways by bringing it from schedule nine to schedule eight. How, how did you kind of digest the report? I'm sure it's been a busy afternoon for you. Yeah, well, just to, to sort of uh, go back at, about some of the history, we put in an application to reschedule these medicines back in July of last year. Mm -hmm. It was in a public consultation period where like 96% of all submissions were in favour. And half of those came from the health, health sector participants. So very strong support. Uh, you then had a negative interim decision in February. Uh, we responded to that by going through every one of the arguments that were used uh, in a lot of detail, uh, in, in quite thick documents, uh, all of which were highly analytical documents. Uh, net result of all of that was that the TJ then decided that, that actually the best thing to do would, would be to get the advice of an independent panel. And all credit to them, by the way, for doing that. Mm. Uh, that panel came out with its report today. And the great thing about that report is, is that they're saying two things. Firstly, uh, these medicines, when they're used as part of therapy in clinically controlled environments, have high safety levels. Mm -hmm. So that should take off the table this issue of are they safe or not. Yeah. Uh, and the second thing they say is that uh, when you look at trial results, uh, the trial results are statistically significant in terms of these therapies uh, being able to generate remissions or, or significant results in patients suffering from treatment-resistant conditions. So, you know, those two factors, safety and efficacy, should, should enable... The, uh, the TGA now to reschedule these medicines from Schedule 9 to Schedule 8. And that will be something that, you know, that, that's a really exciting development. Uh, and, and I say that because at the moment what's happening is that if a patient's treatment resistant and the psychiatrist believes that MDMA therapy or, or psilocybin therapy is the best treatment and the patient gives informed consent to that, the psychiatrist with a, 
with a Schedule 9 medicine can still apply to the TGA for approval to use the medicine. And psychiatrists have been doing that with MDMA and psilocybin, and every time they do, they get the approval of the TGA. But the problem in Australia is this state system we have. And mm. for a psychiatrist to use the medicine, you also need state government approval. Mm. And in Australia, there are no permit mechanisms for state government to give their approval to a Schedule 9 medicine other than in Victoria. Mm. So the beauty of moving to Schedule 8 is firstly, for the first time, they're recognised as medicines because they're controlled medicines. But secondly, it opens up patient access gateways right across Australia. Mm. So it follows the route that cannabis went. Yeah. Uh, and that's really exciting. It, it it's absolutely is. And I think, um, I mean, one of the other things that I, I know it will be small steps in this space, but um, well, first of all, actually, let me just say thank you so much for um, putting in a submission to uh, that interim decision and addressing all of those points in, in turn. Um, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts around the fact that the barriers that, that might exist um, for, for a patient is this idea around treatment resistance. And you saw the same thing with cannabis where effectively to be approved, you had to have failed at a first line therapy. Yep. Do you, what are your thoughts around that? Because I, I imagine there'll be, there's probably some people who, you know, maybe don't meet that high threshold for access to these, but are actually just interested in undergoing yep. and are prepared to pay for a clinically supervised psychedelic um, experience. So yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts around that barrier. Yeah. Look, the reason we started with uh, treatment resistant uh, patients is, is by definition, the current medical system's not actually helping those people to get well. So there is, new, there is a, a need for innovation. And there's also now a lot of trial data supporting the fact that these therapies are safe and effective when used in medically controlled environments. So for us, that seemed to be the easiest uh, hurdle to, to, uh, to cross. Now, when I say easiest, I'm, I'm using that term carefully because uh, there's a lot of bias or there has been a lot of bias against these substances. Uh, so we've had to do a lot of work to make people aware of the fact that all the data, the science and the data does show them to be safe and effective. Mm. I think the benefit of opening up this for treatment resistant patients is firstly, they're obviously the people who are most suffering in our society yeah. and need these therapies. But once they become part of the treatment paradigm for people who are treatment resistant and the medical system and regulators and the public generally get more and more comfortable because they see the results, then I think the next stage is what you're talking about, that anyone with depression or anyone with PTSD will, ha will have this as an alternative to other therapies. And between, between that person and their doctor, they'll choose the, the, the treatment option that uh, most suits them. So if they want psilocybin-assisted therapy as a first-line treatment, well, that will be available. But I think that will only happen when the medical system gets comfortable that the, the therapies are working with treatment-resistant patients. Now, the third stage is, what is again, the one that you're suggesting. Uh, if these treatments work effectively with uh, people who are both treatment-resistant with depression or PTSD and first-line uh, people with PTSD and uh, depression, why can't they be opened up to anybody who would like the experience but in a proper clinically controlled environment. 
And I hope ultimately that will happen. But, you know, I, if you try to get there straight away, I think it's a bridge too far. Uh, but if you yeah. do it in steps, uh, then I think it's possible over time. And let's not forget that, you know, the third one I mentioned, this being available in clinical environments, is what happens in Holland. Mm. And in Holland, the world hasn't fallen apart. So yeah. basically you're saying it's, it's the low-hanging fruit of a use case to get, it, yeah. to get in, get your foot in the door, essentially. Get your foot in the door, but, but also, you know, provide these therapies to the people who need them most. Yeah. yeah. And they're yeah. the ones who are deeply suffering because nothing else is working for them in terms of treatments. But did, did I hear correctly in hearing you say that patients would almost have the option as to which one they'd prefer to try? Is, is that the way it would not be kind of uh, decided by the, the medical practitioner? Maybe you're not suitable for MDMA, but you are suitable for psilocybin, for example. Or... Well, no, I, I think in the first stage, as I say, is treatment resistant. Mm. And... Uh... You've got to get through that stage first and get everyone comfortable that it's working and it's and it's safe when it goes out to clinical practice mm-hmm. uh, and the right protocols are in place. But over time, as people get more and more comfortable in the system, the second stage, as I say, will be opening it up to non-treatment resistant. Uh, in other words, people with depression who may have not gone on onto antidepressants, may have not done done conventional therapy, but for whatever reason. Uh, believe that psychedelic therapy is the best thing for them. But yeah, you don't yeah. get to that stage two unless you've gone through stage one and everyone's comfortable with stage one. Yeah. And I'm a great believer, you know, you've got to push the system a bit, but don't push it too hard. Yeah. Because if you push too hard, it's likely to push back at you. Yeah. And we don't want to see that happen. So is there um, <laughs> is there potentially in a, a stage four, which I heard you kind of loosely alluding to earlier about um, safe in recreational uh, settings as well. Is, is this that- a personal inquiry, Mitch, or is this a sort of <laughs> inquiry? Well, some, sometimes you just don't feel like a beer. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that, that's my stage. That's my stage three, actually. I mean, I just, oh, that's your stage three. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I would hope that that, that that Australia will get to that position, but I, I don't think we should try and push that position until uh, people get comfortable with its use in a medical environment for people with mental illness. Oh, I, I was meaning a non-clinical environment. So clinical products outside of a clinical environment and in the same way that you would, you know, have access to alcohol or, or yeah. potentially marijuana in Canada, for example. Yeah. Well, that's stage four. I think that's a big jump. Yeah, uh, you I know, agree. We, we shouldn't forget that, you know, the, these, these medicines are powerful mm-hmm. and um, I think they need to be respected no, and absolutely, saying, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm not su- suggesting, by the way, that people in a recreational environment don't may not you know, may or may not respect them, because many many people I think who take them recreationally do respect them. But I just think we have to be careful, and do it step by step. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I just meant from a feasibility. Do you think that's even you, you know 50 years from now something that you could imagine? No, like that's I'm kind of just. Well, I, I'd actually hope it, 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 it will get to that stage. But, and, you know, okay. I say that because you, you go to Holland and in Holland you can go into a shop which sells psychedelic medicines uh, and you can buy them and you can then go into a, into a park or you're back to your, your home and take, and take the medicine. And, uh, you know, Holland 
is a civilized country. Uh, the system hasn't broken down because people are taking psychedelic psychedelics. Um, yeah, they're they're called truffles in Amsterdam. They're called truffles, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I would hope it gets to that, but it, I think it needs to be done step by step so people sure. are taken along the journey and feel comfortable. Yeah, I think the um, it's it's interesting you talking about the um, I guess the extent to which the medical community begins to you know really sharpen its focus toward the utility of these um, amazing medicines for some people and. In my previous job, I know you mentioned you're a lawyer previously. <laughs> I, I was um, I was actually a lawyer at a big firm and, and went along to um, support the uh, Royal uh, Commission into Mental Health in Victoria into our system here. And um, just hearing so much evidence from, from so many brave people, including actually Andrew Robb, who I saw is, is coming to your summit, um, which we'll talk about soon as well. But I, um, I was... Yeah, really just what, what really came out of that for me was, I guess, as you said, mental illness is so prevalent in Australia and we seem to have this system that is responsive to people who need acute care, but everyone else before that is kind of really just seeing their GP, getting a script for some sort of antidepressant medication. And for so many, as we've been talking about them, they're treatment resistant. So to me, I, I can't think of a, a medicine that where there's so much incentive really for people to at least try it so that we can begin to actually, I, I, it just seems like there's just such an overwhelming case for people to, to trial this given the statistics that yep. we see around mental illness. Is that, is your sense that it's not actually going to be that difficult to sell or do you still think there's actually quite a bit of reluctance from many in the medical community toward trying these, um, these particular medicines? Um, I think there's less reluctance now than there was two to three years ago, but you know, often it's because a doctor or a health practitioner hasn't actually looked at the facts. And I don't mean, I'm not discourteous when I say that because our, our health practitioners have an enormous burden in terms of workloads. So it's, you know, to ask them to keep reading new stuff, yeah. it's, a, it's a heavy burden for them. But to give you one example, we did a presentation at a, at a medical clinic, a large medical clinic uh, full of doctors. And uh, they invited uh, patients of the clinic to the presentation and they have a psychiatrist on site. And the psychiatrist came into the presentation and the first thing he said to Tanya and me was, uh, you've got to be joking. You've got to be joking that we're, we're going to be using psychedelics for mental illness. <laughs> we, we then took him through the presentation and, you know, we had a professor of, uh, of uh, psychiatry in the presentation team. And at the end of the presentation, that same psychiatrist who'd been so negative came up to us and said, listen, how do I offer this to my patients? Wow. And it's, and it's, it's classic, you know, when, when people go up the learning curve and they see that actually the data and the science supports this and it can be used safely, they, they get on board, but it's, it's, it's a message that, you know, every week we're out there talking to medical practitioners to get yeah. them up the learning curve. Yeah. Big education piece involved. Huge. Edu and same with regulators and politicians. I've got a, a query on that, you know, because obviously I'm thinking about the psychiatrist position before and thinking maybe he's seen drug induced trauma, for example, come through his clinic. I'm wondering would alternative or psychedelics, 
alternative medicines treat drug-induced trauma as well? Uh, when you say drug-induced trauma, I mean, I, well, so, I think it's the other way around, that often people people can get addicted to drugs, whether, whether it's alcohol or something else, because they suffer trauma. And the way they're dealing with that trauma is, is to take these substances that make them feel good, at least for a short period of time. Hmm. Uh, Sorry, what, what I meant was that uh, I know uh, I've heard of some people, for example, anecdotally, have had uh, psychedelic-based bad trips, taking too much, not clinical, don't know what's in it to, to some degree. But I'm just wondering if the same drug could be used to treat that type of experience, if, uh, if, if that makes sense. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the answer is, is yes. But uh, again, uh, Tanya and I don't pretend to be medical people. And Fair enough. Patients need to be screened properly by a psychiatrist in that, in that circumstance. Sure to make sure it's appropriate for them. I should also say that, by the way, one of, one of the concerns of the recreational scene is just what you've talked about. Uh, one, of the, the, one of the groups that screened out of these therapies are people that suffer psychosis. And the reason they're screened out is, you know, if you already suffer psychosis and you go through one of these experiences, uh, you, your psychosis could get worse. Yeah. Uh, now, in an unregulated environment, if people with psychosis start taking these, you know, what are quite powerful medicines, that could be damaging to them. So, you know, I think we've got to recognise that these are these are powerful substances, mm. and they need to be utilised in a in a controlled environment. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I, I think, um, I mean, it's also because you you talked about before. There's you know, almost like a 50 year gap in research. We know that they're powerful, but there's also just so much that we don't know and, and so much clinical research that's being done. I, I saw that, um, I think a few months ago, there was an announcement about, um, I think the company is called, or the organization is called Psyche, and they are opening a, a $40 million research facility in Melbourne. Are you kind of where do you see that research landscape do you feel like we uh, you talked before about how we know enough to know that these medicines are safe but do you feel like there's still just such an enormous amount of research or do you think we're actually in a pretty good position to know what certain doses do for certain medical conditions oh i think in terms of dosing we're past that we sort of understand what are the appropriate doses with psilocybin and mdma uh, and I think we've, we've now passed the, the, the issue of are they safe to use in clinic, clinically controlled environments because we know they are. And that's what that independent report basically conf confirmed today. Uh, and I think from the trial results, we know that they can generate, with appropriate therapy, really high remission rates. Uh, so all that's positive. So in terms of further research, to me, we've got to a stage where these should be available in, yeah. in the right circumstances with the right trained professionals in clinical environments. But there's always a need for further research. And that's true, by the way, of any medicine. And in this case, what could the research cover? It could, it could cover different ways of, of providing the therapy. You know, is one particular way of providing the therapy better in terms of lasting remission rates? It could cover applying uh, these therapies to different mental illnesses, which haven't yet been addressed. And there's a lot of work starting with, with things like eating disorders, uh, work starting with dementia, you know, some really interesting 
early work. Uh, and there's also research, I think, required for other psychedelics, you know, like DMT, like Ibogaine, uh, which are in earlier stages of uh, their development. But in terms of psilocybin and MDMA, you know, let's get it out there in clinical environments which are properly controlled to enable psychiatrists and their patients who want to use these therapies to be able to use them and have the chance of getting well. Yeah, and there'd be, there just must be so many Australians who would meet that eligibility criteria around treatment resistance. The more I'm, I'm sort of thinking about it, I mean, yeah, the numbers of people that will hopefully soon have access to these. But then, of course, do we have a shortage of um, clinics that have appropriately trained staff to be able to do a, a supervised um, experience? I suppose that is something that might need further education. Is, that, is there a shortage there, do you think? There's definitely a shortage. But again, what, what we've done at Mind Medicine Australia is we've started uh, a clinical training program. It's the first uh, intake was February this year. Uh, that was about, I think, 46 psychiatrists, psychologists and other health practitioners. The second intake is currently going through. So by the end of this year, we're going to have 90 trained professionals. Next year, we're aiming for four courses. So another 200 trained professionals. Wow. And each year it's going to, it's going to double or, or treble. So the aim there is to actually make sure we do have the right clinic, cl clinicians properly trained with the right supervision in place. When you look at our faculty, it really is world's best, world's best practice. You know, we have uh, leaders from around the world teaching on the course. We have two extraordinary course leaders who are absolutely fabulous. Uh, one a psych psychologist, the other one a psychotherapist. And the testimonials, testimonials we're getting from medical practitioners who go through the course are fabulous. You know, they're talking about this being the best course they've ever done. Wow. Um, a lot of work's gone into making sure that people are properly trained. That's great. At the same time, we've been designing with clinicians proper protocols to be used in clinical environments and everything that goes around screening and so forth to make sure that these therapies can be used safely. Does, um, it's just a, a strange question that popped into my mind. Are these, uh, a silly, does, does it have to be one or the other? Is it possible for somebody to actually embark on a, a clinically supervised experience with both MDMA and psilocybin, or is that just being a bit greedy? Uh, I mean, that's the, not a lot of research into that, and it's not something <laughs> that uh, we're going to put forward. Uh, one thing might just be worth explaining is that the dosing effects of psilocybin and MDMA are fundamentally different. Mm. Shall, shall I go into that for a... Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think yeah. that's definite value in that. Yeah. With, with psilocybin that's used for depression, you know, when you take the medicine as we did in Holland those years ago, I mean, you literally get transported into another world where you become an observer and you have no control of the, the, the information coming into you, the sensory information coming into you. And it really, if it's done in the right way, can be quite an extraordinary experience. And people invariably come out of that, that experience feeling incredibly connected. Now, when you think of, of depression, one definition of depression is disconnection. You know, I, I've got no friends, I've got no future. Uh, uh, no one loves me. Uh, I feel miserable. Uh, it's disconnection. So, you know, you come out of the experience as a person with depression feeling incredibly connected. And the task then of the therapist in integration is to, is to enable you to take that feeling of connection back into your everyday life. And that's when remission happens. 
with a psilocybin experience, you were literally in another world mm. or another state, state of consciousness, and you're not going to have a lot of conversation with your therapists. They're fundamentally there to make sure you feel safe. And uh, if you start to get nervous or whatever, they're there to basically uh, make sure you get more comfortable. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, there'll be discussion before the dosing session about what happens if you start to uh, go into uh, a bad place. And what the therapist will often say to you is if you start going into a bad place, literally walk towards it. And that's happened to me, by the way, in, uh, in the psychedelic experience. It's interesting. And the amazing thing that happens when you walk towards it in your mind is it just evaporates. Hmm. And isn't that an extraordinary lesson for somebody that actually all these things that bring you down, many of them are just imaginary. And if you confront them, they just go away. So that's psilocybin. Mm. Uh, MDMA is different because M with MDMA, with psilocybin, you and I wouldn't be having an intellectual conversation. Uh, we'd both be in another world if we had both taken the psilocybin. Mm. With MDMA, you're still capable of having a very rational conversation yeah. with your therapist. But the beauty of MDMA is it's, it's an empathic uh, medicine. It makes you feel secure. Uh, sounds a bit weird, but it makes you feel very loving. Oh, and yeah. it's, in that, it's in that environment that the therapist can start talking to the, uh, the person about what happened to them that caused the trauma. Now, the reason that's so important is that normally what happens with somebody with PTSD is they, they go for therapy. And what the therapist is trying to do is get them to talk about the events that caused the trauma. You know, a car crash, a, a, abuse, whatever it is. The problem with that is that often a, a person with PTSD, as they get closer to talking about what happened to them, the fight or flight response comes in and they get triggered. And that's quite dangerous because they start to imagine all the things that they, expe that, that they, they experienced at the time of the trauma. The beauty about MDMA is because the patient feels safe, they can approach talking about the trauma in a way that doesn't trigger them. And that means their last experience of thinking about the trauma was being able to talk about it in an environment where they felt safe. And once you do that, that's the staging post to start getting well. So that they're fundamentally different. Uh, and that's why uh, MDMA is primarily used for trauma and psilocybin for depression. Yeah, the oxytocin but, kind of binds them to the people they're talking to. Yeah. I mean, it really is an incredibly amazing uh, medicine and the beauty of both of these therapies is they're curative you know they're not palliative you know antidepressants tend to be palliative what they're trying to do is smother the problem uh, but they smother it at, at a often at a cost and the cost can be adverse side effects or it can be stifling the joy of life mm. you're taking away some of the depression but you're stifling the high points the beauty of these medicines is that they, they're curative and they enable you to experience life with all its beauty and all, it, all of its wonder. And hey, what a gift to give to uh, somebody who's suffering. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we, we talk about um, access being, you know, one of the primary concerns. Part of that access is, uh, is price. And I'm just curious, you know, how you see that panning out. We know that when medicinal cannabis opened up, it was highly expensive. At, at first, at least, the price has come down a lot. Um, still is prohibitive for a lot of people. But when we're talking about psilocybin and MDMA, how do you see that uh, occurring, at least in this first instance and then potentially down the road? Yeah. Well, 
I mean, it, it, it's fair to say at the moment, uh, sourcing medical grade psilocybin and MDMA is challenging because they've been prohibited uh, drugs for a long time. Uh, what we've done is we've sourced medical grade psilocybin at very favourable rates uh, from a North American supplier. Uh, now, we can't bring it into Australia unless you know we get the right permits and licences. Uh, but when we do, we'll be able to provide it to clinics and for trials and so forth at uh, uh, really in a very cost-effective way. Uh, MDMA, we've done a lot of work in terms of local production, again, to keep the cost down. But bear in mind, the big cost in all of this actually isn't the medicine, it's the therapeutic time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the way I look at this thing is, is like, yeah, the costs of doing this are going to be higher than taking antidepressants because antidepressants are very cheap. But if you get well, there's a, a short-term significant cost, but you haven't got that enormous tail of mental illness that takes you decade after decade after decade. For sure. Uh, so if you do a net present value, <laughs> these therapies actually are a lot, lot cheaper. And that's coming from a you know investment banker. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, net present value. Yeah, but also one of our ambitions. Sorry. One of our aims at Mind Medicine is to make sure these therapies are available to all Australians at prices that are affordable. So we're not doing this just to enable wealthy Australians to get therapy in Australia. Everything we do is focused on making sure that all Australians, wherever they live, whatever their financial circumstances, if they need these therapies and their, their psychiatrists believe these therapies are appropriate, we want to make sure they can be provided at, at prices that people can afford. Does that mean that, like, for example, I think that the there's current rules with Medicare where they will subsidise up to 10 sessions, yeah. I could have that wrong, per year for um yeah, for people seeking counselling or, or psycho psychological services, could it potentially could you potentially see that you know in the future that these types of and I don't know exactly how many sessions yep. are required, but could that maybe fall under the banner of you know subsidised um, supervised uh, clinical services? Yeah, no, but potentially. Hmm. And again, you know, the the aim is that bring it into the medical system, get the government comfortable with it and how effective it is in terms of uh, cost because you're getting people well and then get to a stage where uh, you know, a very large proportion of the cost is, is subsidised under mm. our medical system. Yeah. Um, and that's got to be the ultimate aim. Mm. And you know, the, the great thing there is that when you actually do the analysis, we think the government will, sell, will save a huge amount of money Yeah, because people will be getting well and out of the system. Yeah, exactly. No, it's 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 fantastic. Before we let you go, it would be remiss of us to skip a beat and not ask about the, or at least talk about the upcoming Mind Medicine Summit. Um, it for those who have an interest in psychedelic medicine, I think it's fair to say you've got the A list of presenters coming. Yep. Um, Rick Doblin, um, obviously uh, head of the TGA, John Skerritt. We have um, Andrew Robb I mentioned before and a, a host of other people who have just dedicated so much of their lives to, um, to researching these medicines. Um, I know it's being done virtually, but can you maybe give our audience just a bit of a flavour for, you know, for what they might expect if they're thinking of picking up a ticket? Yeah, well, it is, it is going to be extraordinary because we really have got uh, the leaders from around the world uh, from the research community and the scientific community and uh, leading people from Australia as well. 
mean, basically what's going to happen is that each session is going to have a theme. Uh, each session will involve, involve three key speakers uh, giving a short presentation. And then there's going to be discussion amongst the three speakers coordinated by the chair of that particular session. Uh, and then there's going to be Q&A. And it's designed to really tackle all of the key issues associated with bringing these therapies into our medical system. So it's designed for really the full gamut from, peop from people in Australia who are in the health sector, who are people who are researchers through to just people that are interested in these therapies and want to understand them. Mm. And interspersed with uh, these sessions will be uh, not only some amazing music and uh, visuals, but also in the evenings, we're going to get some of the best psychedelic movies so that people can actually access them as well. Brilliant. And some of those movies are talking about new potential. So, for example, D DMT and what happens to a person going through that experience. So it's really designed to bring this whole thing alive, alive and enable people to really understand why it's so important that this country adopts these therapies and gets behind what we're trying to do. Well, it's so exciting. And I think just the idea of, you know, people who might be in a research silo or in a, a clinical silo, just having them all present their point of view and then having them on stage in, in front of the audience actually talk through and maybe actually learn a few things about, you know, other parts of, um, of where these medicines might fit in. Um, conscious of time, and you've been so um, generous to give us so much of yours. Um, Peter, thank you so much. Did uh, did I be Mitch, any other questions or can we I, let Peter go? We, we'll let Peter go. I just I just wanted to say, um, you know, for those people out there listening or interested further to come down to the, the summit and things like that, how can people join the cause? Like what, what can people do? Is there anything that the average person... Well, the, the first thing is go onto our website because there's a massive amount of information mm. about these therapies and there's great learn sections. Uh, you'll see the strength of our advisory panel and board uh, it's designed to be very user-friendly and it's designed to cover the latest data coming out on these therapies from overseas and Australia. Uh, by going through uh, the website, you can actually book your tickets for the summit or if you're a practitioner, you can uh, book to join to join one of our certif certificate courses in these therapies. Uh, we've also, by the way, got a a new short course, which is four weeks for people who aren't necessarily practitioners, but want to really understand how these therapies work. Um, in terms of what you can do, uh, you can join chat. We have about 35 chapters around Australia and our chapter network is growing very strongly. And that's part of a movement for change. And the role of these chapters is to really broaden understanding in their local communities about these therapies and the fact that they are supported by data, data and science. Uh, you know, to talk to the local MPs, all that sort of stuff, to bring together like-minded people. Uh, so you can join a, You can join uh, one of those chapters. Uh, if you're able, you can donate to My Medicine Australia. Now, we are a charity. Uh, we uh, can only function through donations mm -hmm. and fees that we receive from courses that we run. So that would be something as well. Uh, but, you know, get involved. Uh, spread the word. Uh, contact us if, if you have any questions there's a contact section on the on the website uh, and just realize that actually we have a massive chance now to change the mental health paradigm and offer new treatments which won't suit everybody and we're not trying to suggest that but we'll actually provide 
our medical practitioners and their patients with treatment resistant conditions with a real opportunity to get well. And hey, wouldn't that be exciting? Very exciting. And uh, the precipice. Uh, we are on the precipice and it is a movement and yeah, just huge credit to, to you and Tanya for, for getting, getting it all started and, and taking the momentum forward. So we very grateful to have your time. Um, yeah, we uh, look forward to, to speaking again soon, I hope, at, at some point. And, and Mitch and I are going to try and um, get along to the summit. So, no, right. thanks so much, Peter. Really, really appreciate your time. Yeah. Okay, we'll keep spreading the word. 100% we will. We will. Right. Okay, guys. Thanks, thanks so much, Peter. Cheers. Yeah.